Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. Joining me today is Neil Richards, who holds the Koch Distinguished Professorship at Washington University School of Law, not those Koch brothers, where he also co-directs the Cordell Institute for Policy and Medicine and Law. His new book is Why Privacy Matters. Welcome to Free Thoughts, Neil. Thank you for having me, Trevor. So since the dawn of the internet and probably social media more specifically, privacy is gets a lot more attention, but it seems that that attention is because people think privacy is mostly dead. They do. And and uh, I think, um, as I explained in the book, I think that's a dangerous fallacy, but it's certainly a reasonable uh, perspective for people to take. Um, that was certainly what uh, the Uber driver who took me through Silicon Valley from my hotel to, to give a book talk at Stanford a few years ago uh, said and unwittingly subjected herself to a seven minute tirade about um, only seven minutes because the, the Uber ride was short, thankfully for her, um, about why privacy is continue, continues to be important, why it's about power, why human information confers power over human beings. And uh, I realized it was a conversation I've been having with um, not just with, with Uber drivers, but with friends and family, students and colleagues, uh, bartenders, waiters, uh, the, the woman that cuts her hair. Um, and I realized that that it was an important enough misconception that it was worth writing down. And, and so the book is a representation of of that seven minute tirade, um, hopefully in, in uh, calmer, more measured academic language. Now, we could we could make the mistake of talking about privacy for, for an hour here, but and think that we know we're talking about the same thing where actually people don't really have a good agreed upon definition of privacy. And so you get a working definition of privacy for the book. Yeah, right. As as, as your question suggests, and, and as I'm sure people listening will be will be all too aware, uh, scholars, judges, legislators, um, lawyers uh, have struggled for generations to come up with a definition of privacy that everybody can agree on. Um, and I certainly don't have the hubris to to purport to answer that question for the ages in the book. But I think when when we're talking about something, it's important to define the terms that we're talking about. So so I offer uh, a working definition in, in the book, which is for the purpose of the book, it could be for the purpose of our conversation today, about privacy being the extent to which human information is neither known nor used. So it's definitely about information um, and it has to be, it, it, but it's not about secrecy. That's another interesting point you make. Privacy and secrecy are not the same thing. Right, right. I, I, I think there's there's a couple of things that are important in, in the definition. First, it's about information rather than um, decisions or autonomy or other things we've used to uh, to wrap uh, privacy with. Uh, it's about humans. Um, it, it directs us to pri- information about humans rather than you know, many of these technologies can be used to um, to monitor crops. They can be used to monitor climate change. They can be used for a variety, they can be used to monitor pets. Um, pets may have privacy, but this book is not about that. It's about uh, information about humans, and it also directs us to, to the human values that I think should be used to um, to drive our privacy policy. It's also about the use of information as well as the collection, and and the fact that it's the degree to which that information is used or known. Um, privacy is a matter of degree. Most of the time, for most people, for most of human history, most information has existed in the intermediate states between things that are known only to me, like what I dreamt about last night and haven't told anybody yet, um, and facts that are known to everybody, like that John Lennon and Paul McCartney were in the Beatles. Um, I think uh, our lived experience as human beings is that information exists in those intermediate spaces most of the time. And I think our thinking about privacy and our legal rules should should meet information where it is. 
rather than perhaps where it's easiest to code. Now, early on in the book and, and throughout the book, you bring up a somewhat notorious, at least especially in privacy spheres, story about Target knowing when a woman might be pregnant. Uh, so give us the lowdown on that, and then I want to get into what might be wrong with it. Yeah, yeah. So I really agonized about whether to include this story in the book because, as you're, you're right, Trevor, it's become infamous in in privacy policy circles. But the basic version of the story um, is that about ten years ago, um, uh, the the New York Times reported that Target was using da- big data analytics on the purchase history of its customers, and it could use that to determine when women became pregnant. So uh, changes in unscented moisturizer and and folic acid. Now, importantly, it wasn't diapers and strollers and and all that stuff. It it was earlier. And there were were a couple of incidents in which uh, women were told, you know, congratulations, you're pregnant. Here's Here's a coupon for formula. Um, and they and, and they freaked out. And the the reporting at the time was either um, big data isn't it powerful or big data isn't it creepy. And and at the time I I wanted to push past that. And I think what's actually really interesting about the story and why I think it's still re- relevant to us in 2022 is that the reason that Target was collecting the information w- was not to find it, to invade people's privacy, to find out whether they're pregnant, to sort of flex their big data muscles, maybe a little, little latter, but but they were doing it in purpose of, of, a, of a real goal, which was they wanted to find out when people became pregnant because they knew that that was a time when human behavior is, is particularly susceptible to change, right? That we're creatures of habit and, and one of the, the, all the advertising in the world can make it difficult to, to change those habits, but there are certain known inflection points um, starting college, moving to a new city, and and critically for this example, having a child. And so they knew that if they could get somebody hooked, you know, give them 50 bucks or, or, or less, five on, on a coupon, you could hook them as for, by becoming target customers for, for formula. You could, they could become target customers for, for strollers and furniture and power tools and groceries and uh, toiletries more generally and makeup and socks, right? The whole, everything they sell. And What's in, so it's it's about the power of the union of data science and behavioral science, right? Knowing when someone's behavior can change, that's behavioral science, and using the data about them to manipulate or or nudge or coerce their behavior, that's the data science. Um, and what's interesting, I think, there's so many interesting things about the story. There, the the story has tremendous hidden depths, I think. But the, the what struck me is. When women received the congratulations, you're pregnant, here's some formula coupons ads, they freaked out. They didn't like it. And the, the awareness that they were being tracked um, made them disfavored towards Target rather than favorable towards Target. So what did Target do? It hid the coupon um, for formula in with wine glasses and lawnmower blades and power tools. In other words, the things that they could think of that are the furthest away from having a baby but the the formula coupon was right there where they were most likely to see it, um, and and I thought that that was that was a form of trickery and, and a form of coercion that illustrated the the main theme of the book, which that which is you know builds on Francis Bacon's aphorism that information is power, information is power, and human information, information about you and me, confers power over humans, and and that's 
in a nutshell, that's why privacy matters. If if our listeners take only one thing away from this, it's that because information is power, struggles over privacy are in reality struggles over power, political power, economic power, social power, and and personal power. It's interesting because you a couple times in your remarks just now you said nudge or coerce, and you said coerce again. And that's a very important word for me as a libertarian, but nudging is one thing. Uh, and it's hard to define good and bad nudges. I've, I've read Thaler and Sunstein. I, I know the libertarian paternalism, which you bring up in the book, but you know, when Netflix says, Hey, do you want to watch this show? We know from big data that you might like the show. And then lo and behold, I do like that show. And I'm like, thank you, Netflix. Thank you for telling me something that I want. It's not coercion. It's a nudge. Uh, and why is that different than what they did with pregnant women? It doesn't seem to be categorically different. If they bought this and then enjoyed the products from Target, then the total amount of happiness has gone up by definition because they bought it and they weren't forced to. They were not coerced to in an important way. They were nudged to and they could have not done it. Yeah, okay. So there's a, there's a lot in there. But let, let me take a, a, a couple of pieces here and and and, and find some common, common ground here. So I think I, I agree. I, I like Netflix too. I like Netflix's preference engine. Um, and, and I think there is undoubtedly a line at which you know we can arrange nudging and, and persuasion and coercion and manipulation on a, on a continuum. And I think we can agree that there's a continuum there. I think we might disagree about where that line is, d- depending on how we weight individual freedom and, uh, and, and fears of, of, of manipulation. So I think... The difference is when it comes to to Netflix is well. There, there's a couple of differences. One is they're regulated by a federal law called the Video Privacy Protection Act, um, which limits the ways that they can use that information. Um, I think it's they're also different because they are they are not an a la carte model, the way Target is. They're not an engagement model, the way the way Facebook is, uh, or actually for that matter, free commercial driven television is sort of an, an, is an engagement model too, right? The reason Friends was on the air for so many years is, is they could sell so many eyeballs in the commercial breaks. Netflix is a, is a sort of all you can eat model. Um, and I think that, that calls for different, um, different sets of, of, of considerations. Um, I think on the, on the target example, but to go back to that, um, I don't think it's, it's just a nudge, you know, and, and I think even even going back to I don't think it's just a nudge because I believe that the ways in which Target deliberately targeted uh, their deployment of behavioral science and data science was to undermine the free will of the people making the choices so that they were making the choices at, at the margins and I think significantly at the edges of the margins. Um, not the ones that they wanted to make, but the ones that Target wanted them to make. And Target was deploying choice architecture in a way that that undermined free will and free choice. The key insight, I think, from Thaler and Sunstein is this idea of of libertarian paternalism, right? And and uh, as I talk about in the book, when when Thaler signed copies of the book at book signings, he would always inscribe it with a message: "Nudge for good." Right, that I think that the lesson that we've taken from Sunstein and Thaler, sort of like the target example, is you know nudges are powerful. Um, to a lesser extent, nudges are creepy, um, but mostly nudges are powerful. And I think that's right. But I think if we 
accept that premise or that conclusion, it's important for us to focus on what does choice architecture look like? And I think it reveals actually the vulnerability of human choice um, to those who are in the position to set up what Sunstein and Thaler call choice architecture, the interfaces, the design, the incentives, all of that. And I think it's a good point, and I don't disagree about you know there being a continuum, and there's obviously some point that I would be creeped out. I like how you said creepy because that's definitely one of the things. And you have a great. I, yeah, I, I want to talk about creepiness book. in a second. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, the weird the, you bring up the hidden persuaders briefly, and this kind of anti-advertising motif that has been pretty common, especially from more left-wing circles, more anti-corporate circles, that there's some sort of power that you have by subliminal messaging. Hidden, hidden persuaders you know, brought up this this subliminal messaging idea. And it's all it all ended up being kind of BS. Like, I mean, ultimately, right? And the the ad industry loved that book because it basically told all these people that the advertisers have immense power. It made them a huge amount of money, even though they actually don't have an immense amount of power. And it's very different when I am when they target ads to me. And they say, you know, we think this is, I think this is true of things that are not Netflix. Amazon says, we've seen you bought this before, and therefore we think that you might want this. It's very different. And I also know that it's not some person at Amazon doing this. Insofar as that information about me is known, it's known by an algorithm in a computer. It's not super accessible. It's just an automatic process happening that more often than not tells me things that I want to buy. Um, so the other side of this on the libertarian paternalism is it comes very close to saying what the person actually ends up doing, the revealed preference, is not their real preference. And that's a difficult claim to make, that the person who ended up buying various things related to maternity and pregnancy at Target, that their real preferences were otherwise than what they ended up doing. And I think that's a difficult claim to make. I just came back from a from an eight-day work trip in which I had an awful lot of French fries. And I really, really like French fries, particularly ones that are made from real, as an Englishman, they're ones made from real potatoes. Um, but I don't think my real preferences are, are French fries at every meal. They're sort of French fries in moderation. Um, but the ways that, that menus are set up, uh, you know, uh, have an effect on the choices that, that I can make, right? Things like, if, do, they, do they disclose the number of calories? Do they disclose if they're actually made from fresh potatoes versus, you know, frozen ones from a bag they've dropped in the, in the deep fryer? Um, are there other options in addition to French fries that will be at least moderately as delicious, but a lot better for my for my cholesterol levels and waistline. Um, you know, I, I think uh, it, it's interesting to think about advertising. Um, you know, you 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 said before that uh, you or you implied there's a there's a meaningful difference between an advert an algorithm knowing something and a human being knowing something. This is the point I think that Richard Posner made um, in the debates after after uh, either 9-11 or Snowden. Um, he, he weighed in with, with that point. He's saying it's not as bad if, if a non-human sees you naked. Um, it's, all, it's particularly bad when another human being does that. And, and there, we could argue about that. Um, I think there might be something to that. But the point that I want to make in the book is I don't really care about the human-non-human distinction. Uh, I'm, I'm less interested in um, the sort of um, the emotions of the observer, and much more interested in the power that the information allows people to uh, exert. So, well, yeah, and you bring that um, up in particular. I was you just going to say Cambridge Analytica is a good example here. Where I was just going to bring yeah, it up because you complained a bit about the Target one, but you complained more about Cambridge absolutely Analytica. right. That uh, you know, 
we can we experience commercial manipulation more than we ex thankfully I think than we experience political manipulation. Um, but the point is right. Just as computers don't care if you're naked. Uh, they don't care the uses to which these techniques are being put. And the, the, the exact same techniques that are being developed for commercial persuasion um, are, are being deployed for political misinformation, fake news, Cambridge Analytica-style real name, uh, personalized political ad targeting known psychological vulnerabilities. Um, you know, I, I think back to a, a time in my life when, when like, I think, most people of my generation going to, to graduate school in the 90s, um, wowed by the internet, flirted with this, this notion of um, you know, the end of history and, and, and techno-libertarianism. You, know, you see this in, in the overlap between the civil, liberty, the civil liberties community and the libertarian community and organizations like EFF um, to this day, for example. Um, if we'd had a conversation in 1995 or 1998, about what the internet was gonna do over the next 25 years, right? We were being uh, touted, sincerely, a realm of human empowerment, of individual choice, of meeting like-minded people, um, and this sort of libertarian paradise, and it was undeniably attractive. Um, but what we got instead was the what, what uh, Lena Khan actually quoted my book last week in her, in her speech uh, at IAPP, as the, the the greatest realm of human surveillance ever known to humankind, and and in 1998, always on complete surveillance of everything we did was not just technically unfeasible because of the the we can talk whether they're bugs or features, but the limitations of the TCP/IP protocol to enable that kind of surveillance. But it was also politically unfeasible too. On on the left, on the right, in the middle, at, at all points. Um, the idea that the government should be able to read everything you 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 write or listen to everything you say, know everybody you you uh, talk to, um, was politically unfeasible. As well as whether I think the Snowden re revelations struck a chord across, um, interestingly, across you know non-traditional um, ideological lines, where, where you have the the the, the Widens and the Ron Pauls of the world standing shoulder to shoulder, where, where you know, most of the time they, they don't agree on anything. Um, but this is one of those issues, I think, um, where because we all care about power and we all care about our place in society. We particularly care about our place in society and our autonomy when it comes to political power. But it's still another question of degree because everyone really liked Obama's, they seem to very much like Obama's highly strategic digital plan that he rolled out in 2008 and 2012 to identify, say, someone who had been a voter in the past and maybe wasn't going to vote because they weren't aware of where their polling place was or various things like this. So we nudge them and we, we go, okay, maybe this is a using a nudge for good because there's, I mean, I find the Cambridge Analytica thing fascinating because many people, my friends on the left, one of their biggest complaints about politics is non-political engagement by voters, both in the sense of voter ignorance and then also just not getting involved either in grassroots things or just not voting. And so maybe one of the solutions to this is to let organizations like Cambridge Analytica or some variation of that uh, tell us things that will nudge us towards more political activity. And that is not a bad thing. That's a good thing. So I talk about, yeah, so this is super interesting. I, I talk about, as, as you know, the 
the Obama example in the book. I was at a um, a conference sponsored by the Future Privacy Forum, uh, which I don't mention in the book. Um, they're a great organization, and this is not their fault. Uh, what I'm about to say, um, but Obama's chief data scientist was was there and talked about the way they had used publicly available data roles to get out the vote. Um, and uh, the 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 crowd that day was was sort of left leaning and pro data use leaning, and so most of the people applauded it in. In raptures, and I can remember, you know, talking to to my colleague that my co-author that that I was there with, and he said to me, "All this means is our elections just come down to who has the best data scientist." Because, of course, while that sounds great in principle, um, uh, neither the Obama campaign, nor the Trump campaign, uh, eight years later, nor the um, um, Cambridge Analytica were were doing it even-handedly, right? That they weren't. Uh, nudging get out the vote um equally they were they were targeting which districts do we want to get our people out and which districts do we want to suppress people and 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 as we've seen when our elections come down to dozens of votes in 20 in 2000 or hundreds of votes in in several jurisdictions simultaneously in in 2020 um, maybe I'm naive, um, but but I'd like to think I, I can I can share my naivety at an organization that is committed to ideas. But I don't think that our election should come down to a battle of the best data scientists. They should come down to a battle of ideas and a battle of our you know competing visions of, of not just of the good, um, but I think particularly in this conversation we can maybe agree on a relatively shared notion of the good, but disagree on the right strategy to get there. Um, that that's what I what I think democracy at its best is about. Um, yes, there are there are pollsters and there are professional campaign officials. Um, but but if we also bring in the quants and 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 our elections come down to who has the best data scientists, um, I, I'm not sure we have something we can really call a democracy, at least in the sense that we that we've understood it in the past and the ways in which we tell ourselves it it works and it should work to have the kind of legitimacy that that we um that we wanted to have oh I, I i definitely don't disagree i i i do find it to be a much more of a a difficult fact of trying to figure out how to get voters engaged and one of the ways we could do this is with something that some people would call manipulation and other people would call influence and that's a very interesting line that i deal with because i do campaign finance for example policy at cato and and i get people telling me well they're manipulating or they're influencing, and it kind of depends on which side that you're coming from in terms of this and the in the big data. Right. If, if if it's our guys, uh, I want to get nudging. A, yeah. If it's the other guys, it's manipulation. Um, exactly. Yeah, I, it's. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I I would imagine that that a Cato audience would not find a Scandinavian mandatory voting option to be to be palatable. But I think you probably definitely could, not. <laughs> you could do it with tax incentives, right? And I I think that if you're doing it at a society wide level, and you're doing it at least with 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 a transparency around its commitment to the to the general good, then I think um, we may be onto something here. But but I think if it's if it's purely left to to private ordering, and, and remember, of course, these these techniques are just as good at suppression as they are at getting out the vote. Then I think we'll we'll essentially have you know nineteen fifteen trench warfare. Um, on on voter suppression, and we'll just spend more money on campaigns, and it'll still be a um, you know the political equivalent of a of a bloody stalemate. 
Yeah, no, I think that's a good point. Uh, one of the word you just said a word transparency, which is an interesting word because you deal that's sometimes our solution to privacy concerns. So aside from the big data and creeping on us in good or bad ways, um, you do a very good job in the book of talking about the right conception of privacy and and as the book is called, why it actually matters. But one of the things is this idea of transparency. Like, why if we just are told via a massive, you know. Uh, little thing we can click yes or no if they want to share our information across the app on iOS. If we're just told that we can that we know what data is being collected, well, isn't that the ultimate goal of what we should be? Because some people want more data collected and some people want less. So we should just know and transparency is the, the key. Yeah, that, that's the argument. And notice that I said transparency and not notice, which is the word that we, we normally use in DC policy circles to talk about the regime of, of notice and choice that governs uh, sort of de facto governs um, privacy policy in the United States. And of course, under notice and choice, just very briefly, um, the basic rule is as long as companies give you notice of their privacy practices um, and choice about whether to follow them, um, that's sufficient, even when in practice, notice can mean dense, vague, and actually, I want to say dense and vague language is, is quite a trick to pull off at the same time, but but the the attorneys. Oh yeah, at, but we're uh, lawyers; we can do it easily. Yeah. The attorneys at DC law firms, and and in full disclosure, I used to be one of them. Um, writing these privacy policies really pull that off with a plum. Um, but where where notice is nothing more than um, dense, vague language you can't understand; it's hard to find, buried you know in in the bowels of the of the website. And choice is um, as uh, Representative Sensenbrenner said when the FCC rolled back. Um, the the late Obama era uh, broadband privacy guidelines and, and rules ain't nobody got to use the internet um, and I think that's a problem. So I think that it is important to have transparency. Um, I think it is important to have choice as consumers among commercial options. Um, but I think what has happened in practice is the actual level of choice that that consumers have is is largely minimal and they don't have we don't have the right choices the ones that we'd want like I don't want to have surveillance based ads and I've I've searched for 20 years to find that option on the on the internet and it's never been offered to me um but I but I can go into these uh these menus and sub menus and in principle choice is is empowering um, and in many areas of, of human life, let me be clear, particularly because I'm I'm talking uh, with and to a libertarian audience, I am not an enemy of choice or or, or human uh, flourishing through individual choices and and private choices. Um, but but it doesn't scale beyond the important things: who do I marry? What job do I take? Uh, what brand of car do I buy? Um, what do I have for dinner tonight? What do I name my children? Um, do I have sex with this person? Right. Th those are those are choices. Um, but we've taken that language, that tremendously important uh, concept, which is central to 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 a wide notion, uh, uh, to a wide variety of notions of human freedom and flourishing, and we've we've stripped of it of its context, and we've dropped it into one of dozens, if not hundreds, of platforms and services and websites and accounts that we use. And so we can't remember our password for all of the sites that we use. How can we possibly be expected to um, 
to to make dozens of individual privacy choices um, for for dozens or hundreds of, of platforms and accounts and services and individual websites with things like the e-privacy directive. Um, it just it just doesn't scale. So what do we do? We just click I agree because we are overwhelmed by the choice. And because we click I agree, because the company setting up the choice architecture know we're going to click I agree and, and give up in resignation, they can set the defaults in ways that maximize their preferences and, and not ours. And so, and here's the 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 real magic from from a sort of you know manipulation standpoint of this state of affairs. I, you know, I click agree. I, I do want to protect my privacy. I, I personally, I care very deeply about it. I've written books and articles about it, but I click the I agree because ultimately I just want to read the article. Um, I just want to order the bagels. These are, you know, weirdly specific, but real examples, right? Um, and after that, though, I, I think to myself, even though I should know better, well, they did give me a chance to protect my privacy and I didn't take it. So maybe it's my fault. And this sort of completes the trap, as, as I argue in the book, of, of, the, of the nudging. Let me say one, one final thing. I, I testified at the FTC a couple of years ago, and one of my co-panelists was a, was a lovely, um, intelligent, you can see a butt coming, uh, highly skilled, well-meaning lawyer who worked for one of the major, major cable companies. And, and she said, uh, here at Company X, we want to develop a, a deeper relationship with our customer base and so that's why we have all these dashboards and choice that you can have for your for your cable privacy. And 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 then and now I would say no, I I don't want a deeper relationship with my cable company. Um, I want my cable service to work, and I want to be able to make choices in the marketplace, knowing that I'm not going to be manipulated or exposed. Um, um, and so I, I think in DC privacy policy circles, we have reified. Notice and choice and privacy harm as as the the game in themselves. When really, consumers, in my experience, they just want to make choices about what to buy and what to do. We don't want to engage in in a sort of a a privacy lube job um, every time we want to order bagels. Um, I had a particularly bad encounter with one of the bagel. I was like bagels, privacy apps. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was uh, a, a, a local bagel place here in St. Louis, but it was it's a national chain, um, and I, and they they had said, you know, um, why don't you sign up for our discount plan, um, and you can get you know free sauce or I guess sorry sauce, um, free free cream cheese, and I said, well, I, I just want to buy my bagels and go home because I've got children who are hungry. And they're like, no, no, you should do it. And and the guy behind me is like, yeah, you should do it. I'm like, okay, fine. Just I'll I'll sign up. It took 10 minutes. Now, th at this point, the guy behind me has changed his mind. And he's like, no, I just, I want to buy my bagels. And so I was under a lot of pressure to just sort of click through these various options. And I think this is something I talk about it, it towards the end of the book. We often make our um, privacy policy and commercial policy and, and consumer protection decisions with an idealized consumer in mind, right? The sort of the the homo economicus of of unreconstructed um, uh, law and economics, or or micro or classical e economic thought. Um, I've yet to meet that person, um, right? The the typical consumer is, as again, as as I argue in the book, is is distracted, harried, confused limited in in financial and and technical and, and legal support right we don't all carry cravath swain and more in our back pocket when we encounter a privacy policy 
Um, sometimes the, the typical consumer is even a bit drunk. Uh, and I think we should we should make our rules and we should set our policies for ordinary consumers as we find them so that those ordinary consumers can make choices in the commercial marketplace, can make make choices, uh, you know, I hope they're not drunk when they're voting, but can make choices when they're electing representatives um, in Washington or in the state capitals, free from the fear that they could be betrayed or or manipulated. That, that, when you take that fear, when you take those risks off the table, um, then I think you do start to not just have more meaningful choice, um, but I think closer alignment and, and, a, and, a, and a closer vision of, of the common good um, between, say, progressives and libertarians. But in some important sense, and you push back on this, I think, very persuasively in the book, but privacy is a itself a type of consumer good in the sense that there are different levels of risk that different people have and how much they want to keep something private or not, or whether it's the thing like sitting here looking at my computer, I have a little webcam blocker, you know, that I put on. Some people want that. Some people don't want that. And it doesn't seem terribly different than, you know, some people will go skydiving and some people won't go skydiving. And I have a, a roommate who is, uh, who gets everything delivered to, to this house under pseudonyms. Uh, because he's extremely privacy conscious and he he takes advantage of that. So one point of the transparency and choice should be to let people craft their privacy to their desires and how much they care about keeping certain information hidden about them. And so we should be at least pushing towards that, not a one size fits all, but some ability of people to make those choices. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think, um, but what we don't have is a set of baseline rules that takes manipulation, that takes voter suppression, that takes um, consequences that people do not or cannot understand off the table, so they can make those choices freely. Um, you know, I, that's I a think good point. A good example would be meat. Um, right, that we can't go to the butcher shop. Um, my uncle could because he was a butcher, but we can't go to the butcher shop and or, or the butcher's counter at the grocery store and assess whether there are worms in the meat or whether it's safe or whether it's been handled properly or or whether there's listeria or dangerous bacteria on it. We have a set of rules and we can we can disagree about how um, uh, expensive or searching those rules should be. But I think, you know, post Upton Sinclair, we, we all agree that, you know, no worms in sausage, please. Um, and I think. That's really important. We lack the capacity to assess our own meat. And so we have rules that take the really sort of, you know, uh, Russian roulette aspects of, of, of meat purchasing off the table. Now, we can then go and buy steak or, or processed hot dogs with lots of nitrates. And we can, we can make, quote, bad choices in the supermarket, but the really dangerous ones are taken off the table. And I think we should do something similar when it comes to information products. The problem is, we because we don't have a comprehensive privacy law, the only advanced economy in the world that doesn't, um, and because we don't have, um, I think, sufficient uh, constraint on really bad choices, um, you know, the, the, the equivalent backdrop, of- Essentially a backdrop that- Yeah, a baseline right. So, below which you can't go, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm sure your roommate, well, I've not met your roommate, but I would imagine your roommate um, in, in his privacy uh, selecting choices um, still is happy that he can't buy heroin from Amazon. 
Um, right. There are certain kinds of, of choices. Now that, you're getting in you know, now you're getting into one of my other issue areas. I do think Amazon should be selling heroin. So, okay. But, <laughs> but that's, I think we can stipulate that that is a minority position among Americans. Probably. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, w- I do want to ask you, cause you do a very good job. My personal biggest pet peeve in the privacy conversation is if you don't have anything to hide, you shouldn't worry about privacy. Uh, what's wrong with that argument, which is, I mean, Everyone has encountered it at some point, and, and a lot of people sometimes even, I think, unwittingly use it when they think something is happening, like a huge threat of terrorism. And so suddenly we think that there's a huge threat of terrorism, so privacy doesn't matter so much anymore. So this idea that you only need to hide something if you have something to hide. Absolutely right. It, it's advanced by organizations like the NSA and by defenders, particularly one prominent defender of the NSA in particular is fond of, of articulating this argument. But you're right, it does it does function as a kind of coping mechanism for people who are mainstream uh, or majoritarian on particular uh, avenues of difference. Well, they may have my data, but I don't think, I've got nothing to hide, right? I'm, I'm okay. So there's a, there's a number of problems with with the nothing to hide argument, um, but but very but very briefly, and and putting aside the fact that it was coined by a literal Nazi, uh, a literal German Nazi working for Hitler. Well, putting that to, let's take ideas seriously regardless of their provenance. Um, Important point, nevertheless. <laughs> it, it it's it the, the, you know there there are a few absolute moral uh, lodestars, and I think that that that's that's a pretty good one. Um, uh, so. First of all, nothing to hide is wrong in its own terms. We all have something to hide. We all wear clothes. We all lock our homes. We all have doors on our bedrooms and on our bathrooms. Um, there are certain activities that even even Judge Posner in the Knopf case is willing to countenance. You know uh, this mysterious fact about humans that that are sort of sexual and expiratory activities um, are considered to be to be private. In addition, though. All of us have facts about ourselves that we don't want shared, disclosed, or broadcast indiscriminately. We we confide medical information and and legal information with doctors and lawyers. We we talk to our to our loved ones, our our spouses, our partners, our friends, our confidants um, about a whole range of ideas, like you know wh- whether we like Bridgerton or whether we're thinking about being a libertarian um, or. Or we are libertarian. Don't worry, we, Neil. I, w- I won't tell anyone. Or, 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 or we are libertarians, libertarian. but we think that Atlas Shrugged is a ponderous book, right? I mean, there are uh, lots that's of me. That's <laughs> totally me. Can't stand it. In other words, you know, there are occasions when all of us have a need um, that 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 furthers uh, both our individual values and our participation in society to not have information about us broadcast indiscriminately. So, so privacy about being nothing to hide is, is just wrong in its own terms. We all have something to hide. Second, um, nothing to hide misunderstands why privacy matters. As we talked about, privacy is about power. It's not about hiding secrets. Um, and secrets are part of privacy, but if we think about privacy from a social, economic, political, personal power perspective, um, the nothing to hide argument becomes beside the point. Why are advertisers collecting so much information about us? Well, not because they want to engage in totalitarian domination, um, we, we can put Clearview AI to one side for a moment here, but like ordinary, like, you know, NAI, AIB, ad tech, chamber of commerce types, they, they want to persuade us. They want to, they want us to get us to do, they want to control us, let's say, um, to get us to, to purchase 
products that their advertisers will pay them money for and not products that their non-advertisers won't pay them to do that. And then third, I think the nothing to hide argument focuses narrowly on privacy as an individual matter rather than as a social value. I think we all benefit from living in a society, no matter how boring, bland, or mainstream we might think our views are. Um, and if we're that boring, we should get out more. Um, but I, th I think we all benefit from living in a society in which other people are able to engage in private, private activity, expression, politics, in, in a number of ways. One, um, across a, re a democracy, we all benefit from, from people generating new ideas, like radical ideas that people have literally died for, like the equality of all people, regardless of, of race or sex or, or sexual expression, right? We, we benefited from the intellectual privacy that, that Dr. King and the, and the leaders of the civil rights movement had, um, despite the attempts by the FBI to uh, interrupt them through widespread surveillance and blackmail in, in a number of cases. Um, there are things we are doing in our society that are wrong, that, that history will judge us for harshly, Problem is we just don't know what they are yet. And so I think privacy around political views enables us to figure those sorts of things out. And finally, um, in a democracy, in a in a society in which we have we acknowledge some some sense of, of of shared purpose and some sense of, of of common good, if only because so we don't, you know, all kill each other. Um, I think we we benefit from not knowing everything that our neighbors, our friends are thinking. Um, I, I think a, a privacy enables civility, um, right? We don't have to know what each other's sexual fantasies or religious views or uh, political views or other things are in order to engage with them most of the time in a civil, uh, constructive and socially and individually beneficial way. Um, privacy enables that. Um, and it also I think seems to enable... A, you, you touch on it in the book that enables different types of relationships as defined by privacy. This is, that's almost what the word intimacy means that you've decided to let someone know things about you that not everyone knows. And if everyone knew it, then you wouldn't be able to make that decision to let someone into your inner circle and change and change that relationship with that person. So it's, it's, it is constitutive of our relationships with people. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, one one final point on the on the on the civility point. I think much of our political polarization has come from technological models based upon engagement, jamming things that outrage us, right? Sharing facts about people that makes us think less of them and makes us angry and makes us want to. Well, I'm just I'm going to show that um, libertarian slash conservative slash progressive uh, blowhard exactly what I think about them and, and, and prove to them uh, on, on, on Facebook or Twitter that exactly why they're wrong. And I think some of that anger comes from forcing information about our views out of its sort of intimate context and, and into collision, for, for not for political engagement, but for um, economic engagement with ads that make the Facebooks and Twitters of the world more money. By contrast, you mentioned intimacy a moment ago. Intimacy is an example where we have privacy and we have choice and we bring people in uh, as our confidence, as our friends, 
as our intimates um, into what we really think. But notice what happens too, where there is intimacy uh, or where there are lawyers and doctors and where there is trust, we actually share more information. Um, The better you get to know someone, the more you learn about them and the more they're willing, maybe even socially encouraged by by the process of grooming that intimacy is, right? to to say what they really think about about politics or about your mutual colleague um and and that's one of the real wonderful ironies of of privacy of 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 good privacy protections of good privacy rules it actually enables more information sharing and better information sharing in the context of relationships and i think recognizing um that fact um and recognizing the importance of relationships to privacy um, and to safeguard the the power that information and and particularly the the confiding of sensitive information provides is something that's missing from the ways in which we talk about privacy um, in this country, but I think also in Europe um, with with discussions around around the GDPR. Your those intimates that we were that you that you mentioned a, a little while ago. Um, they can destroy us, right? That we've shared so much information with them um, and we have to trust them because otherwise they can, they can disclose and they can, and, and they can destroy us. That, that's another indication of the, of the power that, that human information confers um, and, and why it's important to, to think about it in, in constructive and, and, and thoughtful and, and nuanced ways beyond nothing to hide. So we, we've, We've touched it. We've touched on it in different ways, but in, in the kind of prescriptive part of the book, and the idea is that th- there should be communal shared values that guide how we address these issues. I mean, there's you have some more, sort of more specific legislative that we need a better baseline, as you said, but but the, ultimately it should be about what sort of values should we be think, thinking about when thinking about privacy policies. Exactly right. So so. I probably came to privacy thinking it was intrinsically valuable. Um, uh, I'm sure your roommate uh, uh, is in a group. I tend to attract a variety of students in my in my privacy courses at Washington University from across the political spectrum who who believe in the intrinsic value of privacy. But I think not everybody agrees on the intrinsic value of privacy. And I think once we recognize that privacy is about power um, and that some set of rules for our society, including just laissez-faire, let the information flow, do what you want. That, deciding to do that's a choice. Some kind of privacy rules are inevitable. We should ask what what guidelines should guide our decisions about, about privacy rules. And, and I think we should think about privacy instrumentally in terms of the human values that good privacy rules serve. And in the book, I, I talk about three of them, development of our identities, um, protection of us in our political activity um, and protection of us as consumers, essentially capturing the, the three basic roles we fill in society as, as humans, as citizens, and as consumers. Um, but, I'm, but I'm certainly happy to talk about other, or to consider today or in the future, other values that good privacy rules might, might serve. I think equality, is another one that I think we we have uh, we're only just beginning to to appreciate, um, but there could be others 
entirely. But basically, as long as our conversation about privacy rules is less about um, the intricacies of, of idiosyncratic definitions of privacy as intrinsically valuable, and much more about the human values that should animate our privacy policy to, to guide and shape the exercise of social power in, in ways that benefit human flourishing or the good or how, however we define that, um, then, then I think the, the not only will the book have been successful, but I think our, more importantly, our, our thinking and, and our, the way we talk about privacy um, at this critical point in, in human history is, is going to be a lot better off. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, make sure to rate and review us in Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Landry Ayers. If you'd like to learn more about libertarianism, visit us on the web at libertarianism.org.